is one of those uh, songs with such a message that uh, I, I could have listened for another five or ten minutes. Hmm. As Ron was praying, I had this thought go through my mind. Um, it was one year ago, I believe, one year ago this weekend, that I was standing up in this pulpit giving you an opportunity to hear me preach. And then afterwards, at that pitch-in, after the pitch-in dinner, you had a, a meeting to uh, seek God's leading and direction if you should call me as your associate pastor. And, and uh, Chris and I are, are grateful that you did uh, for what we've been learning about each of you and our, and our great God and, and seeing love in action in our congregation and uh, humble hearts. You know, uh, when, when we sang that song, we were, we were admitting to God how much we need him and how great it is to be a part of the church family uh, that shares that, that hunger and that desire for, for Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I'm going to invite you to, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Um, it's good for us to be back today. Last Sunday, I was speaking at chapel at Hidden Acres, our free church camp, just outside of Dayton. A lot of you have been there. Uh, some families many times over the course of this summer dropping off and picking up kids. And anyway, I, I preached at the chapel service at 9 o'clock. It's a voluntary chapel. Uh, the kids who are on summer staff, uh, most of them get about 10 or so chapels a week. And uh, yeah, Chris and I were just encouraged to see those kids come to that worship service again because they wanted to, not because they had to. And nobody tells these kids where to sit. You know, they just come into that, that room, that building. And what I was uh, encouraged by, excited by, was seeing they filled up the first three or four rows of the sanctuary. And when it came to time to, to worship, they were worshiping God with all their hearts and when it came time to, to look into the Word of God together, they were locked on and they were looking at their Bibles and just following along with all that was going on. And You know, I said uh, nobody told them where to sit. They, they just chose to. But I, I said to them, hey, you want to bless your pastor when you get home from summer? You want to bless your pastor? Sit up front you know, and be just as excited for what you're, you're learning in your own congregation as you are for what you're learning here at, at camp. Well, as Pastor Jeremy said these last few Sundays, what we're reading about and studying and learning as we make our way through the book of Daniel is incredibly timely for us today. And that's because you and I are living in a world that's growing increasingly hostile towards Jesus Christ and those of us who serve and love and honor him as Lord and Savior. And that's why, again, this morning we can encourage each other with these words, God's kingdom is eternal, be faithful. And as we do that, if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand as I read from God's word, beginning at uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, and I'm going to read through verse 18. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. 
He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good, but if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Amen. You may be seated. This king 
Nebuchadnezzar was not only the political leader of Babylon, the most powerful nation on the earth, he was also the head of his army. In chapter 1, we read about 600 years before the birth of Christ that God had delivered the army of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And then this Babylonian king brought the best and the brightest of their nation to his land to be trained and equipped and indoctrinated. He wanted them at least some of them, to serve in his vast and far-reaching administration. And as Pastor Jeremy showed us, though it was a little surprising to hear, King Nebuchadnezzar was himself actually a very religious man. As we saw over the last two Sundays, if he had a problem he was incapable of solving, this king would look to, in fact, rely on the spiritual leaders in his land for help which enabled God to use Daniel both to describe to the king the troubling dream that he had had, but also interpret that dream for him. And now in this morning's passage, as as Nebuchadnezzar responds to the challenges of of uniting his, his growing and diverse nation, which now included people from every tribe and tongue and nation that he had conquered, Point number one in our outlines, he started a new religion in an attempt to solidify his reign. And verse one of chapter three says that the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, made made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. I think it's fair to say there was nothing like it in his kingdom The image that the king had made was meant to inspire awe in the hearts of all who would approach it. And as I did a little bit of research, it's interesting to note that the dimensions, the proportion of the dimensions of his image are identical to the Washington Monument, 10 to 1. The Washington Monument is 550 feet in height and it's 55 feet wide at its base. And if you translate cubits into feet, which many of your Bibles do, Nebuchadnezzar's monument stood 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. I was trying to get a little perspective on just how big that is. And, and, and if, you, if you go from about here just inside this railing to about here just inside this railing is 9 feet. Okay, So this image that he had constructed was 9 feet in width. But what about 90 feet? What do you compare that to? Well, 90 feet is is about the size of a nine-story structure. And we don't have anything in here, of course, to compare that to. I I got out my my tape measure, and I did a little bit of figuring here in the sanctuary. And if you look up at the ceiling fans that are at the highest point of the sanctuary, or just beneath it, those ceiling fans are about 30 feet above the floor. Okay. So this image which the king had made was nine feet wide and three times taller than our building. In other words, it was huge. The second half of verse 1 says he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
Historians will tell us there wasn't enough gold in Babylon for that image to have been made entirely of that precious metal. Instead, it was likely gold-plated in what would have still been an incredibly costly process. And towering, again, 90 feet above the ground, out in the middle of the country, not in the midst of a great city, it would have been visible from at least 10 miles in every direction. The very tip of that image would reflect the first ray of each new day's light as well as the last glimmer of sunshine at the end of each day. And though the Bible doesn't tell us any details about what this image looked like, when the word image is used in the Bible, it usually refers to a human form. And last week's passage gives us a possible clue, and I say that because in this troubling dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, which Daniel interpreted, this king had learned that his own kingdom had been represented by the golden head of the image in his dream. Okay? It represented the king's power and might and glory. Chapter 2, verse 38, Daniel had said to the king, You are the head of gold. And since the image of the king had created after his dream was made almost entirely of gold, there's a lot of people who speculate that the king's idol was actually expressing his desire to postpone the ending date of his prophesied reign. At any rate, it was an impressive symbol, symbol of his power and his nation's influence over all the other kingdoms of the world. And, and he wanted this image to unite his nation. About 20 years ago or so, I was already in the ministry, but I was bivocational. I worked doing fund development for a nursing home in Cambridge, Minnesota. And every year we'd have a great big banquet, a fundraising banquet. And as the director of development at that nursing home, I was in charge of the committee that was planning the banquet. And um, I had two volunteers on that banquet who were quite sure that it was going to be very, very important that we made certain the 500 people who were attending that banquet sat at the correct table. Okay? Uh, they wanted to make sure that certain people sat with certain other people, and as an extension of that, certain other people did not sit with certain other people. Okay? And, and, and this involved over 60 tables. And, and I thought, oh, wow, are you sure you want to do that? And they were excited. They were fired up. They were ready to go. And, and uh, that's when I realized there's no way I would want to be a special events coordinator, right? Would anybody get excited about doing that? Seating charts, 500 people? But sometimes you have to do that if you have a really, really big event. And praise God for the people who do do that. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar had a very, very big event that he was planning for. He was inviting many people to a special religious service. And, and included in that day were a complex set of arrangements that he obviously would rely heavily on others to implement including his own guest list and, and personalized invitations that went throughout the kingdom. Verse 2 tells us 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In other words, he was making sure virtually every member of every level of his government was at this special service. Okay? The invitations went out. Verse 3 says, Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay? So there's this 90 foot by 9 foot golden image visible from 10 miles in every direction. And his leaders came, accepted that invitation, sent in their RSVP, and showed up that day. And I've wondered as I imagined about what was going on that day, what kind of thoughts were running through their minds as they stood before that image. Were they simply uh, excited to have received an invitation to the special event? Were they flattered so much that they had boasted of this honor to their family and friends? We can't say for sure, but one thing we do know is that none of this had been done in secret. The creation of this nine-story image had involved lots of people, artists and craftsmen and engineers, as well as a lot of manpower. And I'm guessing that most of the people involved in the construction of that image were more than willing, perhaps even honored to be a part of this special project would bear witness to their own nation's greatness. And I say that because back in Old Testament times, a god was evaluated by the size of the nation that worshipped it and the power of that nation's army. So religion in that kingdom, as has often been the case throughout history, served a dual purpose. It was both patriotic and spiritual. And as I reminded you at the beginning of the message, King Nebuchadnezzar had, had only a few short years before crushed the army of Judah, taking the best and brightest from that land back to Babylon to serve him. And it seems that this event on this day was what he had chosen to establish their loyalty. And not just the loyalty of these young men who were new to his administration, but again, every other member of his government who stood before this image waiting to know what was expected of them. What were they to do? And they didn't have to wait long to find out verse 4. A herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But it doesn't end there. Verse 6, he says, Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
So these people gathered that day, they weren't being given a suggestion. This was a command. They were expected to obey. There were no exceptions going to be made for anyone, not even for those who, who may have claimed to be conscientious objectors. Do what I have commanded, or you will die. I'm going to have you hold your spot here in, in Daniel and turn with me to John chapter 15, verse number 18. John 15 and 18. Those of you who are familiar with current events know that in other parts of our world, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing very, very similar threats. Often at the hands of people like this king who consider themselves to be very religious, very devout. In fact, Jesus prophesied that many of those who would hate his followers would be convinced they were doing God a favor by putting people to death who refuse to worship the deity they are loyal to. Loyal to, okay? God's people in Babylon were facing heavy-duty persecution. And Jesus wants you and me to be prepared for not surprised by the hostility we may be called on to endure on account of our love for him. And that's why in John's gospel, these words are included. John 15, starting at verse 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse. Jesus says, don't be surprised. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Not only that, he gives us a warning. If the world loves you, we should be aware that our witness, our identity, our loyalty to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not very apparent. Okay, back again to Daniel. The king was determined to use his new religion to unite his nation, to make sure that every citizen was completely loyal to him, which brings us to the second point in our outline. If it meant avoiding danger or death, most of the leaders gathered on that plane were willing to go with the flow. Verse 7 says, As soon as all the people heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
But you know, think about that for a moment. Those men gathered that day who had no faith in this false god were being asked to worship that idol. And, and at least for a few moments, as soon as the band started to play, it looked like Nebuchadnezzar had gotten the 100% participation rate he was aiming for. Nearly 100%. And, and I got to thinking as I meditated on this part of the passage, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't the only Jews who were gathered on that plain. Now, Daniel's name is not mentioned here in chapter 3. Some speculate he was out of the country on official business and wasn't required to be at that service. But pretty much everybody else was. And the other young men who had been part of that re-education process, that same three-year program that Daniel and his three friends had been completed were standing there hearing these instructions and being told exactly what to do and willingly doing it. And though they may not have counted these fellow Jews as their friends, it's almost certainly shared a common heritage. And yet when, when push came to shove, when it was going to cost them something, in fact, their very lives to profess their faith in the God they had always worshipped, all the rest of them caved in. They fell down to that image and they chose to worship it. Before they were taken into captivity, it's, it's quite likely that during their growing up years, each of these young men had learned a lot about the one true God. The one who by the power of his word had created the heavens, the highest heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them. They had been told of the patriarchs and God's faithfulness and his steadfast love. How he had delivered their forefathers from bondage in Egypt before bringing them into the promised land. I did a little bit of studying about what it was like, what that preparation, that religious training was, was like for these young men. And I discovered that they would have been required to memorize, along with other parts of God's word, the Ten Commandments, okay? The commandments God had delivered to his people through his servant Moses. They had committed these ten to memory. By the way, how, how well would you do if, if I gave you a quiz? Could you name all ten? We've got two of them up on the big screen, the first two commandments. And I'm going to invite you to read the white text aloud with me. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So they know, they knew. Those other men who had also grown up in Jerusalem, they knew because God had made his expectations crystal clear. These two were also commands. And by the way, just who had God given the responsibility of teaching his word and his ways to the next generation? Who had that opportunity, privilege? Who had been tasked with that challenge? You know, this last week, our church combined with three other churches to, to hold vacation Bible school at the high school. I, I was my first experience with it. I was there three of the days, and it was fun to see um, how these kids were being taught and, the, and uh, helped along in that learning by volunteers from our church and these other churches. And, and, and outside of Bible school, each Sunday during the school year, what do we do? We have our own Sunday school program for pretty much every age and stage in life. And, and then we have Awana and youth group, and we send kids to summer camp, all to help these young people get established in their faith. So praise God, our church does a lot to help kids come to know and love and serve Jesus. But I want to come back to that question again. According to the word of God, who has been given the primary responsibility of the spiritual training of our children? It's not a trick question. The responsibility has been given to moms and dads, but especially to you fathers. We are given, again, that great responsibility. And, and, and many of the Jewish people took that very, very serious. In fact, twice a day, even today, devout Jews recite the Shema. It's part of their prayers. They do it at morning and the evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Okay? Twice a day, the dad would remind himself and his entire family of this responsibility. And why? He did it because he knew he needed to remind himself often of this great responsibility that had been entrusted to him. Nebuchadnezzar had likely invited all the nation's leaders to be a part of that inaugural worship service, in part because he knew something very important. He knew if he could secure their loyalty, their example would likely inspire or at least rub off almost all of those they would be responsible for governing. So before we leave that thought, I just want to ask you moms and dads, if your kids aspire to have the same level of devotion to Jesus as you do, would that be a good thing? If your faith was contagious and the ones who call you mom or dad loved and honored and esteemed the Son of God as much as you do, would, would that passion 
encourage your sons and daughters to use the gifts that Jesus has given them to help build and establish his church, to grow his, his kingdom, to faithfully proclaim the gospel to their own generation. Would it be a good thing? And if you don't like the answer to that question, what should you do? Are you, are you willing to do something about it, to change? You see, God wants to use you and your example to teach your children what's really important in life. But like a lot of other things our kids learn from us, our values are caught as much as they're taught. Um, last week when I talked to those kids, uh, we looked at 1 Timothy 4.12, and, and the fact that God says to all young people, you can set an example for other believers, okay? Speech and life and love and faith and purity. We talked about that and, and the privilege it is to represent Jesus to their peers, and not just to their peers, but everyone in their church family, okay? And uh, after the service was over, uh, two ninth grade girls came up to me, and uh, they were excited about camp and what they were learning and a little bit about my message. And one girl wanted to share with me uh, an illustration she had heard her pastor recently share with the dads in her congregation. And, and uh, I just felt compelled I need to share that with you this morning. So this is for all of us, but especially dads. And, and the pastor said something like this. If your wife, you, if you spent an hour and a half every Sunday morning with your wife and an hour or so on Wednesday or Thursday night with your wife and that was all she saw or heard from you all week long, what would your relationship look like? Okay. Why did the pastor use that illustration? use that illustration because for a lot of families, the only time kids see mom and dad living out their faith is Sunday morning, perhaps the night they go to life group or prayer meeting. And as the faithful Jews would recite in morning and evening, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to compartmentalize our faith into these convenient pockets of time on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. But it's supposed to be woven into our very essence, the fabric of our lives. When we walk along the road or are driving our 15-passenger van to the swimming pool, we are given an opportunity, a privilege, to speak truth and life into the lives of our kids. Dads, moms, but especially dads, remind you again, your values are being caught as much as they're being taught. And again, is that a good thing? We don't know exactly what was going on in the homes of those young men who chose to fall down before that idol. But we do know that when it came to avoiding danger or death, most of them were quick to cast off any convictions they may have been loosely holding on to. And as I say in that outline, simply chose to go with the flow. And, and that's a dangerous thing to do, church, to join with everyone else who is content 
to travel that broad road that Jesus says leads to destruction. I'm, I'm guessing some of those young men may have cast a quick glance at their peers before deciding what they should do, but more likely if it meant saving their lives, most simply chose to do what the king wanted them to do. At least nearly all of them again, because we get to verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And if you're familiar with with chapter 2, you know these are the same men whose lives had been spared when God enabled Daniel to interpret the king's dream because the, the king had said, if you guys can't do this, you are all going to die. And yet, they were jealous for this king's honor and had these evil thoughts towards Shadrach Meshach and Abednego. They declared to the king, verse 9, O king, live forever. Verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. This, this same Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Which brings us to the final point in our outline. In that day, only a few of the kingdom's leaders loved the Lord more than they loved life itself. Only a few. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar again answered and said to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And then he issued this ominous warning, middle of 15, If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is that God? Um, I wish I, I came up with this thought myself. As I was preparing for message, I came across this quote from Warren Wiersbe very godly teacher-preacher who only recently received his promotion to glory. Wiersbe says, Faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. To help drive that home a little bit, I'm going to invite you to read it aloud with me. Let's do it a second time. Faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. Do you have that kind of faith? Do you want to? And for those of us, again, who are moms and dads or grandmas and grandpas, do our kids and our grandkids, do they have that same kind of faith? Are they being rooted and grounded and established in their faith? For when the days of trouble come, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you my age or so, even younger, are, are familiar with the fact that many of the kids who grow up in churches just like ours leave the faith when they leave home for college. Many of them do. Not, not all, but many. 
And there have been lots of studies in recent years designed to learn why. And I'm not going to go deep into those studies, but in the process, it's, it's interesting. They discovered five of the most commonly shared characteristics of, of young people who stick with Jesus Christ after they leave home. Okay? So these aren't universally true, but these five characteristics are shared in this order by kids who, after they graduate and leave school, off to the work or join the service or head to college. The most important factor, or the one that was held most commonly, is, is their mom and dad not only were regulars on Sunday morning, they knew what their gifts were, and they were using that gift to serve in the church, to further the work of the kingdom. Okay? And nobody can do that except mom and dad. And this, again, was the number one most common characteristic. Not only were mom and dad bringing the family to church every week, the kids could see my parents behaving in such a way, giving testimony to what they believe. Second, the kid has at least one adult in, outside of their family who's interested in their spiritual growth. That's part of why we have our mentoring program. But it doesn't have to be a mentor, okay? It can be a Sunday school teacher. It can be uh, uh, someone without any uh, job assignment, job description. Uh, for some of my kids, it was a senior saint in the congregation that learned my child's name and would look in their eyes and ask how things were doing and, and, and offer to to pray with them. And uh, one guy even invited our oldest son to go fishing, and my son's never forgot it. He wanted to talk about spiritual things as they wet the line. Number three, their family has at least one shared spiritual experience outside of Sunday morning. So not only were they regulars on Sunday morning, there was a time during the week where they were discussing interacting, learning together what God's word says. You know, praise God for those who have family altars. But, you know, if you get feeling like, I can't do this six, seven days a week, what's the characteristic, you know? At least once outside of Sunday morning, you stop and talk to your kids about what's most important. Uh, factor number four, that child had an opportunity when they were growing up in the church to be involved in ministry. And not only did they have that opportunity, they chose to participate. And, and when it says life-on-life uh, uh, life ministry, ministry that shows results, it, it means they weren't just cutting construction paper with kids. They were doing like some of our young people did this last week. They were teaching kids, little kids at Vacation Bible School. And then finally, this one's kind of interesting. <laughs> that family usually ate at least one meal together every day. Oh, okay. So these are factors, characteristics anyway, of kids who stick with Christ. And moms and dads, parts of that, you can have a great amount of influence in. I also want to say, you are not God, and you do not have the role of the Holy Spirit in your family. Um, 
Um, I heard one pastor say it's like uh, when, when we're trying to pass our faith on the next generation, it's kind of like building a campfire. You can set the kindling in the right place. You can have dry wood. You can have all the conditions exactly right. But the Holy Spirit is the spark that ignites the flame of belief in the heart of our young people. But moms and dads, as you look at those characteristics, either be encouraged that you're doing a great job or be encouraged to start doing some things different because God has given you the primary responsibility of discipling your kids. Okay, moving on. I want us to listen to these three men and be encouraged as they choose to exercise their faith in the God of all creation, in their rock, their redeemer, their strong tower. Verse 16, these men answered the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. (laughs) Then I love this. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And I say praise God for their courageous and faith-filled profession. You know, and the amazing thing is, once they got to Babylon, they weren't going to synagogue services on Saturday, okay? They had gotten their faith rooted, grounded, and established before they were sent into exile. They had already counted the cost. They had already de- determined whatever takes place in this life, Lord, I am going to serve you and honor you and live for your glory. Many of you probably have a copy of Oswald Chambers' devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. He he says the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. That's good, isn't it? You know, and, and these guys, they weren't about to deny the God of their salvation. They knew their Redeemer as holy, as just, as righteous, as compassionate, as faithful and merciful and gracious. They knew the God they served was powerful and sovereign. They knew that though their circumstances had changed, God hadn't. He was and is the same. The only one worthy of our worship. And you know, as a result of the profession of these three young believers, all of history still remembers their names. Have you ever wondered how you would respond if you were put in a similar place? Yeah, maybe you wouldn't have bowed down to that idol either. Maybe you would have been willing to enter that fiery furnace. But truth be told, if the only way you or I could qualify for heaven was to perfectly keep all of God's laws and ordinances and decrees, I would not only be without any hope of heaven, the Bible says, I would be spiritually lost. I would be dead. I would be on my way 
to an eternity of suffering, not in this king's furnace, but in the flaming fires of hell. And if it's troubling for you to hear your pastor speak that way, look at the Gospels, because Jesus taught and warned a whole more about hell than he did about heaven. I'm telling you all this because you and I need to admit, and I'll freely say I am a sinner deserving God's judgment and condemnation. We all do. And, and nobody has ever secured their entrance into heaven by perfectly observing the Ten Commandments. No matter how hard we try to be good, you and I are incapable of saving ourselves. The Bible says God gave us his law not to save us, but to help us realize our need for a Savior. And that's what Galatians 3.24 says. Worship team, you can join me up here on the platform. And church, can you read this all this verse? Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. By faith. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We are all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And though it's not very likely any of us this morning are going to be told to bow down to someone else's God or die, we're all going to have opportunities in the course of our everyday lives to stand for righteousness, to profess our faith, to point others to Jesus and proclaim the good news of his gospel. And Lord, as we bow before you, we ask you to check our hearts. We're grateful for the example of these three young men, but Lord, we know they were only doing what you enabled them to do. Their lives had been transformed. They knew, I am sure, the depth of their sin and their need for a Savior. May we be, each one of us, be convinced of the same. We are grateful, Lord, that when we run to the cross, we can have our sins forgiven. As far as east is from the west, your word says you remove our transgressions from us. Not because we're good, not because we're trying hard, but because we are humbling ourselves before your son. We're having the work he accomplished at the cross credited to our account. And that truth that understanding of all that you have set us free from gives us great joy and encouragement and desire to willingly count the cost and stand for you even though it will cause us to stick out. Lord, your kingdom is eternal. Help us to be faithful for the praise of your name. Amen.